What sets humans apart in our world that makes us so special? Some people would say our intelligence, or maybe our physical abilities, or maybe even our ethics. For a Christian though, what most separates us from the rest is the fact that we were made in the image of God. In Genesis 1, the Bible goes out of its way to make this point. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This makes humans stand out with this unique connection to the Creator. But what is that connection exactly? What does it actually mean to be the image of God, and how should that impact the way we view ourselves and the world He gave us? While that feels like it should be an easy question to answer, the language in this passage is so vague it makes the term feel like an empty religious phrase we recite in church. Our English translations of the Bible don't really elaborate on what it means to be the image, so we're left to let our imaginations run wild. I, like many, grew up just assuming that being an image of God was literal that God was just an old man in the sky who looked just like us. The older I got though, the more absurd that idea became. Many Christians have taken to more metaphorical interpretations, that God gave us some special characteristic that sets us apart from the animals. But again, Genesis doesn't give us any indication of what that unique thing actually is. Is it our wisdom, our relationships, our consciousness, or is it something that we lost in the fall of man? I knew there had to be someone who could help clear up all of these ambiguities and confusions, someone who could point us to the right direction to better understand who we are as the image of God. Someone like this. My name is Carmen Imes. I am an associate professor of Old Testament at Biola University in Southern California. Dr. Imes got her doctorate at Wheaton College, where she did extensive research on Exodus, Mount Sinai, and the Ten Commandments, specifically what the Ten Commandments mean when it tells us not to bear God's name in vain. In 2019, she took that dissertation work as her basis for her first book, Bearing God's Name, why Sinai still matters. The book was a huge success, being praised for bringing new insight into a commandment Christians often misunderstood, and for breathing new life into Old Testament passages often overlooked. As people dug deep into the passages, the idea for her next release quickly formed. My first book came out in 2019, at the end of the year, just before you know what happened. This book flowed out of that one in that the first book raised questions for people about, well, what does this mean for all humanity? Or isn't it what you're saying about the people of God, isn't this true about everyone? And so I wanted to broaden the scope of the conversation and talk about what does the Bible say about what it means to be human? And how should we properly understand the Bible when it says that we're made as God's image? And then where are the ways where we can see consequences of not fully embracing what the Bible says about being human? After a few years of research and writing, she finally released her next book earlier this year, 
being God's image, why creation still matters. So it's a, it's a book that's trying to do a lot of things at once, and it's not trying to be the final word on anything, but it is, uh, I am hoping to introduce people to some bigger questions about what does it mean to be human and why are we here, and reframe that conversation in a much less self-centered way, in a way that I hope will reduce anxiety and inspire people to dig into scripture more. As I read through this book, I was excited about the ideas it explored and the clarity it brought. If anyone was going to help me make sense of this mysterious image, it was Dr. Carmen Ives. Before diving straight into the paradigm-shifting epiphanies I found in her book, I first wanted to better understand the underlying assumptions Christians bring to this conversation. I'm curious, as you've been telling people about what you've been working on, what are the common kind of assumptions or questions that people tend to have when talking about the image of God? Mm -hmm. uh, lots of people assume that the image of God is a human capacity that we possess that makes us different than animals. And there's a lot of debate about, about which capacity it is. Is it our intellect? Is it our relationality? Is it our moral, uh, con our conscience or our sense of moral compass? Uh, is it our ability to commune with God? Mm. There are lots of things that make us different than animals. And many people assume that the Imago Dei or the image of God must be how we describe that difference. Mm. Um, I argue in the book that it's not. That, that the the image of God is not a human capacity, but it's our human identity. Mm -hmm. That yes, we have capacities. Yes, we have difference differences with animals, but those are not the content of the image of God. The other assumption people make, and this is very deeply rooted in the tradition, as is the first one, is that the image was somehow lost or distorted or diminished in some way when Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree, mm -hmm. and I try to argue in the book that the image has not been lost. It hasn't even been diminished. And I think that that's really important for human ethics. So those are, those are probably the two, uh, the two biggies. One other one that comes up sometimes is that people say Jesus is the image of God, but we are not. Mm. Um, that only Jesus really is the image of God in all caps. And we are in the image of God. We're sort of one step removed. And so that's another thing that I address in the book. Yes, Jesus is the image of God, but not because we aren't. He's the image of God because he's human, just like we are. Yeah. Okay. So there, there's a lot of things already that we can just d dive straight into. But I think before we get into like the nitty gritty of it, um, I, I think a helpful question is when people first reading and listening to these scriptures, mm -hmm. when they heard the idea, people were made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. um, in, when people read that part in Genesis 1, what were the ancient Jewish people thinking about? Yes, I'm so glad you asked that question. And I feel like, Joel, that's the question people have been failing to ask for a very long time. And they've been just then thinking, what are what makes me different from animals or or what do i think an image is instead of asking that that really important question of what about the historical context and culture 
um, would have shaped the way they heard the word image. So the Hebrew word that's translated image in Genesis 1.26 is tselem. And a tselem is a physical statue or idol of e- either an idol of a god or a statue of a king. It's something mm. very physical and very concrete. Everywhere else it's used. It's not used to describe the immaterial things about us or what we look like. Um, like, like even a mirror image mm. is not it is not concrete enough for, for what this word denotes. It's less so of like a picture that we take and right. more so like, you know, an, an actual idol that people can like bow down to. That's the word here. Yes. It's, it's three-dimensional. Mm. It is not, it's not a painting. It's not a drawing. It's not a reflection in the glass. Uh, it is, it's a three-dimensional object that represents or points to the presence of someone who who can't be seen at the moment. So in the case of a deity, um, if you make an idol of a deity, everyone in the ancient Near East knew that that idol was not the deity himself mm. or herself, but that it actually represented the presence of that deity and in a, in a sense channeled the worship or glory that was due them. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's like a concentrated point where we can think about this deity and, uh, have some kind of communal relationship with the deity. Um, if mm. it was a, a statue of a person, it would indicate that they have laid claim to this particular place. So there's a king, uh, an ancient Near Eastern king named Hadad Yithil. Mm. I think that's how you say his name. Yeah. I feel bad for him in kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, right. Hi, I'm Yithil. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he, he conquers this vast territory and then sets up a statue of himself at the far borders of this territory mm. because he can't be everywhere at once. And he wants to remind people who is boss. Mm. And it actually is inscribed on the statue that this is a, this is a tselum of him and a demuth. Demuth is the word for likeness that we also see in Genesis one twenty six. So it's coordinating those two words, image and likeness, mm. just like Genesis 1. And it's attaching them to a, a three-dimensional object that represents and points to the rule of the king. And so when God makes the world and then he makes humans three-dimensionally and places us in creation and calls us his selim, his demuth, he is saying, you are my idol statues. Mm. You represent my presence in the world. And most people through history who have read this in translation and have not been ancient Near Eastern people have not realized this. And so we've spent a lot of time thinking about what it means to be different mm. without knowing <laughs> what it meant to the original hearers. And it was something very concrete and three-dimensional. So the fact that you, now we're talking on screen right now, so right. you are not three-dimensional to me. Right. But I know how this works, <laughs> how this technology works. So I know that in real life, you are actually three-dimensional. Mm. You have a human body. That meet, that's what qualifies you to be the image of God mm. and to be human. Anyone with a body is the image of God. Wow. That's, that's basically what Genesis says. And already right there, that feels so dense. Like mm. it, it feels like in some ways it clears things up, but obviously based off of the length of this podcast and also your book, there's a lot of implications that that come from that. Yes. I think the first one that kind of pops into mind, it, it feels very strange to talk about us 
as the image of God in the same way that like people looked at idols, people worshipped idols. And I don't know if it's just because idol worship is less explicit mm. in, you know, modern Western context. That's not really something that we see, but that is something that is often very, very frowned upon. Of course, yes. We have, and rightly so, we have a very negative view of idol worship because the Bible's prepared us to think of this as not, a, not being a good idea. So then I'm coming along and saying, you're just like an idol. <laughs> so how is that supposed to be encouraging? Um, but I think it's an analogy for us. Um, and a physical statue in, an, in a temple is an authorized representative mm. of the deity and we are authorized representatives of the deity who created us, namely Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so he's placed us on earth. Um, if you think of yourself as a statue, it's both limiting and freeing. Like it, there's something really cool about, I am God's authorized statue. Um, but it's also like, I'm a statue. And yeah. I, it, it, it takes away the sense of, self-determination or expressive individualism like i'm it's this is not all about me expressing myself or becoming whatever i want to be i have there's a givenness to who i am because Mm. i'm made for a purpose and that purpose is to reflect god's glory and to represent his presence and his rule uh which is a very high calling but it's also less self-centered than the one I've probably been told is my calling by, by Western culture. Yeah, because like you, you talked earlier about how there is a very distinct difference between being made in the image of God and actually being the image of God. And I think the leniency that comes with being made in the image of God, that idea kind of suggests I have some sort of quality. I inherited my mom's eyes. I inherited my mom's nose. My voice is very Mm -hmm. similar to my grandfather's. These are all things that I inherited that I have. Yeah. But those things don't inherently, that I don't have any responsibility because of those things. Mm. Mm -hmm. What you're talking about um, and what it, you know, seems like the Bible is talking about is less so these qualities and more so of a role. We go from a possession to an obligation. Yeah. And I think that if Jesus was just the only true image of God, then I'd be good because he died for my sins and he did the hard part. Yep. So I can just skate through life and not worry about what I do. Yeah. Yeah. And I I would want to clarify because a lot of people talk about um, the image of God in functional terms, that the image of God is a role that we play. And I want to be careful to say that the image of God is our identity Mm. and it has implications for our function or role. So the stuff we do as the image of God is, is, is good and true and right. And we should do these things, but it's not the content. Like doing those things doesn't make me the image. I'm already the image. Mm. Um, just by virtue of being an embodied human, I am the image of God. Therefore, I should do these things, but these things don't make me the image. And the the reason I want to be careful to separate those two from each other is because we all know human beings who have experienced chronic illness mm. or debilitating disabilities or injuries 
that have made it impossible for them to uh, do what humans normally do. And I want to say they are still every bit as much the image of God as I am. Yeah. We, we don't have, we're not human doings, we're human beings. Mm. And, and that, even though that's not like a, a biblical Hebrew thing, it actually works really well with what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, to be the image of God is, is something we are, not what we do, but it has implications for what we do. So we have a built-in vocation. It's like being given a job description. Mm. Um, but if we can't or won't do that job, our identity hasn't been compromised. Mm. It kind of reminds me of, um, of in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, when Paul's talking about like, you know, now he sees in a mirror dimly, but yeah. then he'll be able to see him face to face. Now he knows in part, but then he's going to know fully. Mm. It's this sense of um, we can't ever stop being the image of God. Right. Um, but if we, we can act as though we aren't, yes. but that isn't going to change anything. You know, it doesn't change our identity, mm -hmm. but it does change the, it, what I would say is it, wh what we lose when we don't act consistently with our identity is we lose glory mm. that God has designed us to, to bring glory to him and to exhibit our own kind of glory. There's an, a, there's, there's an honor that's attached to our function, uh, as God's representatives. And so you can be the image of God and be completely rebellious, turn your back on God and not, not participate in any of his work. Mm. And you haven't lost the image, but you have lost the glory. Mm. And so that's what's being restored in my view. Um, that's, that's what's like maybe through a glass darkly now, yeah. um, but soon will be more full is we're, as we're conformed to the image of Christ, we're, we're, there's ever increasing glory mm. because we're aligned with our identity. We're living congruently with how God created us and who God created us to be. Mm. So it's like a relationship. Um, I think maybe my favorite illustration is a parent-child relationship. Mm. A parent and child can be estranged from one another. The child could rebel or the parent could be a schmuck. And there could be some kind of like falling out between them where there's no longer any communication, but there is nothing that either of them can do, like it or not, to erase their essential biological connection. The child's DNA came from their parents, whether they like it or not, and that can't be erased. So in a similar way, humans who have turned their back on God or who have never discovered God, they, they might not be living in alignment with this God-given identity because they don't know about it or they reject it, but they, they're, they, it's still true of them, just like your DNA is true of you and cannot be altered. Our, our essential identity is a given, and the process of sanctification is conforming to Christ so that we can live out what God designed for us. My favorite word is alignment, living in alignment with our, our true identity. Mm. Instead of falsehoods, various falsehoods that the world throws at us, you know, you can be whoever you want to be, or you are enough, or follow your heart, or all the different things that the world throws at us to try to inspire us. Mm. These things are actually lies. You are not enough. Mm. 
and neither am I. On our own, we can't do and be all we need to be. We, we were designed to need one another and we're designed to need our creator. And so if we don't recognize that, we'll be barking up the wrong tree for a long time. So let me try to kind of compartmentalize everything that we've been talking about so far. Essentially, we are the image of God, that that is how we were created. Just like an idol mm-hmm. um, in an ancient time was there to, to represent and remind people of a king or a God's authority over a land. Mm-hmm. That's what God created us to do as images in the world. We are there to represent God and to point all of the glory back to him of being like, we create because God created us. We love because God created us. Mm -hmm. All of these different ways are ways that we can help people remember the true nature of God. The only way that we can actually do that, though, is if we are committed to that to that image. Mm. We all have the capacity for it, but we need to actually take the steps to apply it. You know, a lawnmower is still going to be a lawnmower no matter how many years it sits in a shack. Mm -hmm. But to be that fully functional lawnmower, to be the most that it can be, it needs to be well tuned. It needs to be oiled. It needs to have that maintenance. Needs gas. Yeah. And it needs to be started and it needs to be pushed where there's long grass. Yeah. No matter how long you abandon all of its needs, it's still going to be a lawnmower. Yeah. But it's only when you are intentional about nurturing um, and, and catering to its nature, mm-hmm. that's when we can actually see uh, how well it works. Yeah. And maybe that's not the best analogy because you know it's it's more so about a relationship yeah, here yeah. but the same idea is still true we get to image god through the personal relationship that we have with him mm-hmm. so with all of that kind of said that that's the that's the framework that we're working with um, but I feel like it's going to be helpful to kind of look into the phys- like the the actual application of mm-hmm. how that plays out. Sure. Um, how does how does God use us as His image to kind of manifest His His presence mm-hmm. into the into the world? Yeah, I mean, if you um, <clears throat> let's imagine that we had the capability of traveling to Mars here a minute and we landed on Mars, if we saw an intricately designed building that was well-apportioned and well-built, we would, we would know instantly, okay, somebody is here. Yeah. There, some, th- this didn't just happen by accident, but there's someone behind this that's responsible for this, this amazing thing. Um, it, it wasn't just an accident. And I think in a similar way, humans testify without even doing anything. We testify to the existence of a someone who intended something impressive. Mm. We have two eyes that can see. We have a nose that can smell different scents and distinguish and is connected with our memory. And so we can smell something and it brings us back in our mind to that time when we were six and we ate that meal Hmm. 
we have just all of the the human capacities that we possess even if even if you're lacking one or more of them um at as an aggregate like all humans together point to the existence of a someone who who thought thought of us in the first place mm. we're not just an accident so this is why we don't even have to do anything to fulfill our initial role of just pointing to the creator because we're just just by being embodied our bodies testify to god's greatness as creator but there are all sorts of things he gives us to do as a consequence of our identity um and we begin to see these things right away in genesis 1 god makes male and female as his image so that they may rule mm. over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field so there's a there's a built in a responsibility to rule over creation that is as benevolent caretakers to make sure that things are things remain ordered. I think Genesis one is a story of bringing things into order where God um, creates domains and then populates those domains with residents, and it's all very well endowed so that there can be room for flourishing. There's food enough for everyone. And we are supposed to rule over that, which means we carry on the work of maintaining the order of creation. In Genesis 2, God gives Adam a task of naming the animals. That's a very creative task that normally the one who makes it would name it. Mm. But he's passed the baton and he's allowing Adam to name the animals in part so that he can recognize none of these things are equal to me. Mm. All of them. None, none quite corresponds to me. None will offer the kind of companionship that God says that I need and that it's not good that I don't have. Mm. And so it's by naming the animals, he's, he begins to recognize his need for com human companionship. Um, but he's also participating in that creative work. Uh, Genesis 2 begins with this statement that God had planted a garden, but it wasn't flourishing yet because there was no person to work it and take care of it. And mm. so... God makes the human. So there's there's a, an essential role as gardener and ruler and namer mm. and someone who maintains orders. Th those are all aspects of our being human. And it's in effect, it's as if God passes the baton to us. He he begins to demonstrate his work as creator. And then he says, okay, now it's your turn. I want you I want you to carry this on. So when Eve gives birth for the first time, she says, "I have created a man with the help of Yahweh." Mm. Uh, her giving birth is an act of creation. Yeah. That she's participating in the work that cre a creator God does. So that's not the sum total of what humans do. We're, mm. It's just the beginnings, yeah. right? We're we're seeing just the beginnings as they're in a garden, but it's not less than that. And so I think of this every day. I walk to work, walk home again. And every day when I see trash, I don't know how it keeps appearing because most days I reach down and pick it up yeah. and throw it away. But then the next day there's another granola bar wrapper or another cup <laughs> from Starbucks or another whatever. Um, and, and so I, I see that as my human responsibility. Mm. I'm, I can't be the caretaker for the whole earth, but I can be the caretaker of the one mile stretch 
of path between my office and my house. And I try to keep that part cleaned up Mm. because I'm human and my human responsibility includes creation care. Mm. It's not limited by that, but that's part of it. All of that is well and good, but here's where we run into a major problem for many Christians. The biblical portrait as we've explored it so far seems to put a pretty big emphasis on our role in the world. But for a lot of people in the church, this fundamentally flies in the face of what heaven's supposed to be. We believe in Jesus, and when we die, God plucks out our souls and brings us to the good place. Creation burns up at the end of days, and we get to live our lives as spirits and only spirits. This worldview is completely incompatible with the ideas we've been talking about. How can our identity be in representing God here on earth if all of this creation is just going to be thrown out for a new one? How can this temporary world be part of our eternal value? We'll explore that and so much more, but first, let's rest our minds for a moment and reflect on the ground we've covered so far. We'll be right back. Let's look at what we've covered so far. When the Bible talks about being the image of God, it isn't talking about whether we look like God or even us having any special powers. Rather, being God's image means we are his ruling representatives in the world. Just like a statue of a king represents his power in a city, our very existence and creativity works to represent God's authority here on earth as it is in heaven. That identity is an invitation to participate with God in a deeply personal way. We get to embody our creator through the work we do every single day. And when we take care of our world and the lives that live in it, we are working as partners with God to rule the world like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. While that portrait carries a beautiful sentiment, there's still plenty of questions that still need to be addressed. Um, one thing that I'm so thankful that you spent a lot of time covering your book is the uh, questions that immediately come after that. Because in most traditions of, of Christianity in America, um, there's a problem with that image. Sure, we get to image God in creation by taking care of it, by keeping things neat and tidy, and keeping our community safe. That's important. But at the end of days, all this earth just gets washed away and doesn't matter anymore. The earth, the, the physical creation doesn't matter because mm. we just get, our soul gets plucked out of our bodies and then shot up to heaven. Um, mm. And I think that's really different from not only how you just depicted it, but also how the Bible 
talks about creation and heaven. So I'd love for you to just kind of um, give initial thoughts about why is the physical world so important to our identities Mm. as images? um, And how does that impact God's eternal plan for us being the image? Yeah, Yeah. Joel, I think you're right that um, in in the West and in our Christian communities, and I imagine this has seeped around the world, we have been deeply affected by Platonic thinking Mm. that separates matter from spirit and privileges or prioritizes spirit and denigrates matter in some way. And that has seeped into our eschatology. We think about this world as a place that's just going to burn and we're going to be beamed up somewhere else and we'll be floating somewhere on the clouds. Sometimes people talk about being given new bodies. I don't, that's kind of interesting. We have this very patchwork view of the future that doesn't seem to listen to what scripture actually says. When God makes everything in Genesis 1, he calls it good. In fact, when he makes human beings in our bodies, he calls us very good. And the story of scripture is not the story of the eventual getting rid of our bodies so that we can be all that we can be. Mm. It's, it's instead the story of the restoring creation so that we as embodied humans can fulfill the vocation we were given in the garden. Mm. So I, I spend a fair bit of time in the book on Jesus. In part three, I spend a lot of time with the New Testament and track with Jesus. But just on a basic level, the fact that Jesus comes in the flesh, Mm. in a human body, is really significant. If the message was, hey guys, I I know it sucks right now, but someday I'm going to get you out of there and you won't have the trappings of those arms and legs and you'll be free to just float wherever you'll have no limits yeah um if that was the message then he wouldn't have i doubt he would have sent that message via a human who Mm. was embodied (laughs) yeah but jesus comes in a body he dies in his body his physical body is raised to life and he ascends to heaven to sit at the right hand of god ruling over creation as a human Mm. he doesn't he doesn't shed his physicalness if he did, then it would be justified for us to think about us getting rid of our bodies. Mm. But I think the Bible affirms the goodness of creation by, by showing us that Jesus participates in it and, and in a sense gives it a new, he gives us a new lease on life because when he rises from the dead, Paul tells us that um, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits mm. of all those who've fallen asleep. So it's not just like, wow, cool, cool trick that God did. He resurrected a human. He resurrected Jesus. And now we're going to just go on doing what we've done. No, Jesus' resurrection points to the fact that every one of us will be raised to life. Mm. Every one of us who's placed our faith in Jesus and is part of the covenant community will be physically raised to life in our bodies and there will be mysteriously some kind of continuity between our body before and after this resurrection so that we'll be able to recognize each other Mm. and and so i speculate in the book a little bit about this about what what are the parameters of that will disabilities all be erased i'm wondering if tattoos will disappear Mm. or if we'll still have them 
Jesus had scars. Will I have all the scars that I have now? Yeah. Or will some of them disappear? Are Jesus scars unique or certain scars, you know, stick around? I don't know the answers to these questions, but I think it's fun to speculate because it helps to have that speculative conversation helps to uncover the assumptions we've made about what is good and what honors God and what we were made for. So the Bible speaks of a new heavens, a new earth. I don't take this to be a different one than the one we have now, but rather in this new in the sense of renewal. Mm. God will renew all things. So there will be no more trash on my walk to work. All the stuff like that will disappear. Anything that's been built as a tool of exploitation or domination or degradation or whatever will disappear. And the things that have been built that glorify God and that encourage collaboration and that make the world a place where everyone can flourish will still be here yeah. in the new creation. I, I think it's such a helpful distinction to, to really emphasize how it, it, the Bible makes clear how important our physical world is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you get into a lot of the different, um, the, the different issues that comes when we forget that fact or mm-hmm. when we downplay the importance of our physical world. Yeah. Taking care of it, the exploitation that we see, you know, the mindset of this world is a free trial <laughs> and at the end of the game, we can pay the subscription by being Jesus's <laughs> followers. You know, like there's, it's a minor thing. Everything about this, this conversation, it's minor changes to how you think about things that have major implications. Yes, yes. And with that part of, hey, physical creation as it, as it is now, will matter for the rest of eternity. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important thing for us to kind of have in mind um, because that means that the work that we do now to image God in how we treat not just the world and other creation, but other humans as well, Yeah, that has eternal consequences and implications and importance. And eternal value. Mm. Like to the extent that we do it well, there's an enduring quality to it that I think we don't always appreciate. Mm. Uh, that the work we do now could last. Isn't there a hymn that says that our work is going to pass through a fire like a refiner's fire? Mm. And what's been done for out of selfishness or if our work has been shoddy in some way that will burn mm. but there's something about there there's a quality of work that could endure and this this i think elevates the dignity of human labor mm. labor is not just something to put up with but it's something that is meaningful deeply meaningful and and our work matters mm. one of the things i like to to quickly follow up with though is to say Although our work matters, it does not make us matter. Right. So we don't work in order to achieve some kind of worth or mm. dignity because it's already God-given. Yeah. By being human, we already possess great worth and dignity given to us by God. But the work we do matters. And so we have a sense of agency that I think is freeing and inspiring. Yeah. We're invited to, to make a difference, but it doesn't all depend on us and our... Worth doesn't depend on what we produce. So that 
if we can sort of ride the m- middle between those two extremes yeah. of just denigrating work or of putting too high a value on it, I think we can hit this sweet spot where it's energizing. Yeah. I, I think for me, how I kind of, what I hear in that is essentially you're saying that we have the opportunity now to be a part of heaven. Mm-hmm. That it, it's it's Paul's idea of it, heaven is here and it's already here, but it's not yet in full. Yep. Um, now I know in part, and then I'm going to see fully. We get to participate in a new type of creation yeah. where we, again, we take the role of God's image where we are creating and where we are loving mm-hmm. and where we are working to point towards our creator yes. because he wants that participation with us. And doesn't Paul say it in these terms? He says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Right, exactly. Like new creation isn't exclusively future. Because of Christ's resurrection, the new creation's already been inaugurated. It's somehow simultaneous with this world. And so we can lean into that and participate in that ahead of time. And again, I think that taking this small little shift in perspective makes such the world of difference because we no longer have any room for the sentiment of, well, Jesus saved me, so I'm good. I don't have to do anything, Mm -hmm. you know, of just like, Mm -hmm. God will forgive me. I know I'm going to sin, but I'm going to do it and I'll be fine. We don't have room for that, but we also don't have room for legalism where I have to earn God's favor. I have to Mm -hmm. earn God's salvation by constantly doing work for him. Yeah. Neither of those are true. What we have instead is God giving us this inherent image and this inherent identity. And we get the opportunity to decide, am I going to use this to Mm -hmm. bring more of heaven here on earth? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great way of putting it. Mm. And I just, the image in my mind right now is if we were gonna get in a spaceship and take off to go to the moon, it would be essential that we are poised exactly, precisely in the right direction. Mm. And just one degree of difference on earth before we launch could make us land way wide of the mark. Mm. I, I was reading uh, Amazon reviews today of the book, <laughs> as as one does, yeah. and m- most of them are very, very positive, but one person was complaining that I start off the book with this really pedantic discussion of grammar, trying mm. to say that we are, we are the image, not we are in the image. And to me, it's that one degree difference yeah. at takeoff, like, let's get this precisely right mm. at the very beginning. These little assumptions, because we're talking about not just what am I going to have today for lunch, but what is my life about? Mm, <laughs> this right. is a long-term aim. Yeah, We want to make sure we're precisely aimed in the right direction. This whole conversation and your entire book has been really helpful to uh, make sure that we, full pun intended, have the right image in mind as we're reading through the Bible. I guess 
as we're starting to wrap things up, you know, we can theorize about what are the applications to every individual life, but I think it's more helpful to give actual examples. Mm. In what ways has your work on this book reshaped how you view your faith? What are the practical ways that you've actually seen applications from these kinds of conversations? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, two things come to mind. One is just a greater appreciation for Jesus' life. Mm. I think we focus a lot about uh, a lot on Jesus' death and resurrection. Yeah, and especially his death. In in, in uh, conservative Christian circles, we 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 want to get that right. What exactly is happening when Jesus is on the cross? And so we get, we become very atonement centric. Mm. I'm not. I don't want to downplay the atonement. I think it's very important. But sometimes we just leapfrog from virgin birth to death on the cross and we skip over all of the ways Jesus demonstrates his humanity mm. and and so it was fun for me to reread the gospels and ask the question what are we learning about being human mm. as we watch Jesus heal people or Jesus go to a wedding or Jesus get angry or uh you know whatever there there's so many different things there that I think came alive for me in a new way and the other thing, the other way that I think this book changed me is I knew I needed to study disability mm. and get a better handle on disability. That, that was part of the reason I wanted to write the book, because I realized that if every human being is the image of God, then there's no hierarchy of human value. Yeah. Every human being is equally valuable and equally full of dignity. And I know that our world does not operate like that and that there's, there's a, a dismissal of, of people with various kinds of disabilities. And I, I think what I didn't anticipate is just how much I would become aware and I'm still learning, but aware of this cookie cutter mentality that we tend to have where we picture humanity or the ideal human as this certain Person and if I mm. if I asked everybody just grab a piece of paper and draw a human, okay. Now add some detail to your drawing. Um, it's very unlikely that someone would draw someone who's using a wheelchair, yeah, or someone who's on the spectrum, mm. or someone with Down syndrome. Th that wouldn't be the first. Like this is our paradigm for humanity. Mm. Um. And I'm just becoming aware of the ways that that just puts pressure on our assumptions about who's worthy of my time and attention, uh, what what's necessary to do. I've, I discovered in the process of researching for this book that it was Christians who lobbied hardest not to have to comply with the Americans for Disabilities Act mm. when the ADA was passing. Um, Christian schools lobbied hard for an exemption so that they would not have to become accessible. Mm. And so churches and schools are under an exemption where they're like grandfathered in. So what wow. that means is our churches and Christian schools are among the least accessible buildings of any places in society. Wow. Which means it's much easier to go to a bar if you're in a wheelchair than to go to church. And it's just bizarre to me why why Christians wouldn't be out in front yeah. leading the way on this because we believe with all our hearts that every human being matters. Yeah. 
mm. and that everyone is the the image of God. So that's just one example among many. But um, I think I'm grieved by what I learned, mm. but I'm also really encouraged because a whole new world has opened up to me of people who are coming from very different places in life with different skills and abilities and different ways of experiencing the world who have so much to teach me. Mm. And I, I went from feeling like, okay, we need to have buildings that are accessible and we need to be more inclusive to thinking we need to learn from mm. those with disabilities. Yeah. Um, so not just to have a wheelchair ramp that gets someone into your building and I'm using a wheelchair just as a, as an example, there are all sorts of hidden disabilities yeah. as well, but that's a very prominent one that's easy to see. So we have wheelchair ramps that get people into the sanctuary, maybe, but not up to the stage. Yeah. And what does that say when we don't expect to be learning from those with physical limitations around us? So I'm just challenged by that. Yeah, it still communicates the fact that, sure, we may cater to you, but it's still operating under the assumption that we are above you. Right. You don't have something to offer us. Right. We're we're here to we're here to reach down and meet your needs. And I mm. I um I had the opportunity to work with an editor on this project who is a wheelchair user. Mm. And it was it was great to get his feedback on the on the parts about disability. And I read uh I read books couple of them on on disability and i have a new commentary that i'm now consulting where the each author is paying attention to what does this book of the bible contribute to our understanding of disability or where does it address disability and this is just something i haven't spent a lot of time on in the past and i have a lot to learn but it was a really rich and surprising area of learning for me yeah i loved those parts of the book that really just took time to explore that and to recognize that because there are these ways that we as Christian communities need to respond mm -hmm. um, and ways that we need to make sure that um, we open up that image to everyone. Yeah. Um, and I, I really appreciate you taking that time for that. As people are chewing on everything that we've talked about so far today, what do you think are going to be the helpful questions for people to be asking as they mm. continue this conversation? Mm. Yeah, I would love for people to ask, what does my embodiment have to do with discipleship? Mm. What, is it, what does it look like to bring my whole self to follow Jesus? Uh, what does it look like for those in ministry, what does it look like for me to recognize people as embodied humans? In other words, we don't just treat our congregations or our Bible studies or our students as brains on a stick, hmm. but we recognize that they have full bodies with complex needs and and potentials. And what would that what would that mean to to give that airtime and to take it seriously? Um, what would it look like to recognize every human being as the image of God, regardless of race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, gender identity, 
uh, regardless of height, uh, of what language someone speaks, what skills they have, what disabilities they have or abilities, what would that look like? What would it look like to recognize that neighbors experiencing homelessness are in fact my neighbors and they're people made as God's image, um, not someone who is uh, bringing down the value of my house or constituting a safety threat to this community. And I'm not saying that there aren't questions we need to answer about security, but first and foremost, to recognize every single person as the image of God. I think I think that would change the way we, we do business and the way we interact with people all around us. Um, what would it look like to make eye contact with the cashier next time you're at the store and just smile and ask them how they're doing? Recognize this person is not just a tool for my satisfaction or Mm. fulfillment, but they are a a fellow image bearer. If you're wanting to answer these questions for yourself or just want to explore this theme further, then you need to pick up Dr. Im's book, Being God's Image. She walks through all of these ideas we've talked about today in so much detail and covers even more concepts we simply didn't have time to talk about here. So if you're wanting this discussion to continue, Being God's Image is the perfect place to start. The book is available on Amazon or wherever you like to order books, your favorite local bookseller or directly from the publisher at InterVarsity Press. It'd be great for people to know that it's available not just as a paperback and Kindle, but it's also an audiobook. And I got to be the one to narrate it. Mm. So this, I mean, in keeping with the conversation we just had about disability, uh, not only are there people who just prefer audiobooks because they can work out at the same time or drive, you know, commute to work or whatever at the same time as listening. Um, there are some who aren't able to read or for whom processing works better to hear it audibly. And I hope it's a blessing. I felt like I was reading it to each one of you, and it was such a great experience to do it. I'm I'm on Facebook and Twitter. You can follow me there, and I have a YouTube channel mm-hmm. where I release weekly videos called Torah Tuesday that are, right now I'm working verse by verse through Exodus because I'm writing a commentary on Exodus. Oh, wow. Uh, so not directly related to this book, but um, if, if people are interested in digging deeper into scripture, Uh, that's a a place to find me where I've got new content coming out every week. You can find a link to all of those in the show notes below. Thank you so much once again, Dr. Imes, for coming on the show. And thank you for listening to That Won't Preach. I hope this podcast can be an encouragement as you continue to ask hard questions and explore your faith. If you liked the show, let me know by leaving a rating in your podcast player and leaving a review. For more episodes and resources, be sure to head to bit.ly slash that won't preach. Again, that's bit.ly slash that won't preach.